going to do something different. I'm going to ask Miss Cara Jantz to come up. She's going to read some scripture. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to John 19, starting in verse 16. And be careful, you might be confused about what church you're at, but I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word. So he then handed him over to, to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross, to which the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a, branch, upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In your notes this morning, I've given you 45 different prophecies that were fulfilled during Jesus' first advent. Now, before you lose your mind, think we're going to go through all of them. We're not. Those are for your personal study. But as we begin wrapping up Jesus' first advent, and today we are going to be talking specifically about the cross and next week about the resurrection, it's important that you see that Jesus is God. It's important that you take the time from today to next Sunday, and if you spend time researching those passages, you will come to an amazing conclusion that no one else in history could have done what he did. With that, I want to start us in asking the question, what is God trying to tell us through the cross? If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 45. There's going to be a lot of turning today. Turning of pages, hopefully turning of hearts, turning of minds, and I'm praying that I don't turn anybody's stomach and we'll be all right, right? In Isaiah 45, and yes, I've taken away the screen because I want the cross to be the center point of what we're doing. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, this is actually the verse that we use to start this foundational framework series. And as we're wrapping it up, and it will be wrapped up over the next two or three Sundays, it's important that we come back to it and understand 
the heart of God for the world. Notice that it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Does everybody see that? If you're looking for a good verse to latch on to, let's read it one more time. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What in the world is God doing by putting His Son on a cross? I've actually heard accusations that what the Father was doing at that time would be considered divine child abuse. That He was actually abusing Christ in some way. And because He did nothing wrong, it was completely unjust and uncalled for. There's a lot of things about that worldly thinking that they miss the basic principles of why the cross matters. We cannot just set it in a place in history and leave it alone. Everybody's got to have an opinion about Christ. And it is His death and His resurrection that call into account the greatest skepticism, but also provide the greatest credibility for who He is. And so I think it's important for us to maybe take a journey through the Scriptures and contemplate what exactly is God doing in offering Jesus on the cross. What is the cross trying to say to us? If you would, take your Bible. Turn with me. We're going to look at a lot of different things here. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the best places to start. With the cross of Jesus being the center point of all history, and we could sit here and contemplate it for forever and say that it's many things. I've come to, I've come to three things that I believe, if I, if I could be so audacious as to try to sum it up, there are three things I believe that God is really trying to tell us. And if you are taking notes, the first thing that you want to write down is that God is trying to paint a picture. The first thing He wants to tell us from the cross is He wants to paint a picture for you and I. He wants you and I to see something unquestionably. He wants it to be so vivid and clear that we cannot easily forget this picture that He's painting. In Isaiah 53, look at verse 4. Surely our griefs... He himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's break this down real quick. Three verses. Let's break it down. Notice in verse 4, surely our griefs and our sorrows. Does everybody see that those are emotional things? Yes? We get that? One of the greatest things that Christ dealt with on the cross while paying the price for our sins was the emotional turmoil that our sin often injects into our lives. This idea that we paint a, a, a facade of sin is not harmful to anybody else. Sin is not a big deal. Well, it's my own personal sin. Well, I'm not harming anybody by doing it. And our different parameters we want to put on it show the extent of our foolishness. Sin is like a large boulder that has been chucked in a lake. And the ripple effects continue on and on and on until they beat against the shore over and over and over again. Some of you have been through that in extreme measure. Some of you have understood, understood the beating of sin. Whether that is something that you have done to another and have serious remorse for, or whether it's something that someone has done to you and you're searching desperately hard for forgiveness. The reason why forgiveness is so desperately needed right now is because it manifests into bitterness. And bitterness too often lets God know, get your hands off me, I won't be used. That is a sad place. In fact, 
that's one of the reasons why Israel, as a nation, is put all throughout the Old Testament. You are a stiff-necked people, hard-hearted, unwilling to be used, unwilling for God things. So when we talk about the ideas of bitterness and forgiveness and those types of emotions that we often struggle through and suffer through, Jesus had it all on his shoulders at this moment. Jesus felt every bit of it. Now, I don't know if you can place yourself in that type of mentality, but stop for a second and picture someone who has never even known sin internally. It's never even entered into the picture. Jesus has seen it. Jesus has had to deal with it since the beginning of eternity or beginning of the world. But as far as it actually affecting him inside of sorrow and grief, he knew what it was to weep over something like Lazarus being dead. But the idea of sin, frightening. Notice it says, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. Notice that he is smitten of God. Smitten. The word means struck down. God struck him down. Who killed Jesus? We did. But God did. This is important, guys. Yeah, today is a heavy sermon day. I know. I know it was already heavy because I took away the screen. But the content too, right? I got the mic. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And watch this. The chastening... For our well-being fell upon him. Everybody see that word, well-being? Our completeness, our soundness, our welfare, our peace. Think about what it's saying here. The chastening for our completeness, our soundness, our well-being, our peace fell upon him. Parents, why do you chasten a child? Parents, do you still chasten children today? Okay, just want to make sure nobody's in sin for not disciplining their kid. Do you guys realize not disciplining your child is sin? Yes? Oh, did I hit a big nerve there? It is. Not disciplining your child is sin. It doesn't take long to read the Word and find that. Train a child up in the ways they should go. Train them. Raise them up according to the discipline and admonition of the Lord. The Lord condones it. But why do you chasten a child? Why? Because they did what? They sinned. You ever told your child that? What you've done is wrong. What you did is sin. Talk about word association real quick, right? What you did is sin. And that's why you are getting ready to get spanked. You were wrong. And why do you chasten them? Is it just because they did wrong or what? No. To teach them right from wrong. Because there are consequences for wrong. And what you don't want is you don't want them later on making the same mistakes and you are hoping that by instituting that precautionary penalty, you are stopping them from making greater problems for themselves in the future. Chastening. Notice what it says. The chastening of our well-being that would lead to our completeness and peace. It fell upon him. If you got more than one kid, next time one of them sins, go grab another one and spank them, see what happens. That work out well? Well, not for one of them, does it? The other one's like, whoa, this is all right. What else can I set on fire, right? The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, wandering our own way, not consulting the Lord on anything. Each of us has turned to his own way my own path i just need to be my own man and figure it out for myself 
My son tells me now, no, Daddy, I got this. I got this. I'm like, you do not. It's traffic. Give me your hand. You're like a sheep. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. I want to point something out to you. Notice verse 4. Our griefs. Our sorrows. We ourselves esteemed Him stricken. Verse 5. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. He was chastened for our well-being. All of us, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Everybody see the picture that God is painting. It is a spiritually bankrupt and destitute people. It are people who have no hope. No hope. Get this, guys. No hope. It is not, I'm getting ready to drown, but I think maybe I can swim. You are paralyzed in the middle of the water and sunk. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Notice that all of this, verses 4, 5, and 6, scream the idea of a substitution. What you deserved, He gets. What you earned, He has. What you should be punished with, it goes to another, another, another. Everybody see this? Okay. This right here brings to mind Another idea in Scripture that is so important. Look at Leviticus 16. See, you know it just got serious. We got into Leviticus. Leviticus 16. And what we have in Leviticus 16 are the directions for the Day of Atonement in the Scriptures. The one day a year where the high priest, after having changed clothes and cleansed himself and sacrificed for himself, could enter behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle blood on the lid of the ark, the mercy seat, in order to atone for the sins of the people. Sometimes we don't realize just how thoroughly saturating sin is. Let me ask you a question. I'm trying to find ways to make this really hit home with everybody so they get it. Your last Facebook post that you had, who was it about? You? Probably. Why? Because we're all famous on Facebook, aren't we? And those pictures you posted? Who are they about? You? 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 Everybody get the picture? We are all fans of me. We love me. And God set something up in the midst of Israel in order to strip the idea of the self-life away from people so that it wouldn't be about me anymore, but it would be about Him. Now Leviticus 16 deserves to be studied in full, but I want to show you just a couple of interesting things. In chapter 16, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Yahweh said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark. That's what they called the lid of the ark. Or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So the presence of God will be there. And he can't just mosey in. You can't just mosey in. Anybody moseying in their Christian life? I'm just moseying with the Lord? Probably too much more than we would want to admit. But notice what it says in verse 3. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for burnt offerings. Look down at verse 6. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for who? himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Look at verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for and for his household, 
And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for... Don't you think that it's crazy that the person who is going to be offering the offering to God for the cleansing of the people of Israel had to go through such painstaking measures to cleanse himself before he could be cleansed? Does everybody see the thoroughness of sin? How many people have ever thought of a preacher as a holy man? That's actually probably a good thing. Usually when we, meet, when we mean that, you either mean the traditional, he's the man of the cloth, which is odd. I've never understood that. That's like calling him the big guy in the sky or something like that. Don't call God that. Or it's just a simple fact that you see the traits or characteristics of holiness in his life. Notice that luxury is not given to Aaron. Aaron, before anybody else can be sacrificed for and before their sin can be atoned, you must atone for your own sin. You have to deal with you before you can deal with anybody else. Sin's arms are so far-reaching that it has tainted you and prevented you from just moseying into my presence to try to offer a sacrifice for sin. Get yourself straight first. And then enter in. Deal with your sin before the Lord. Then you can come to me. Now, am I saying that to be saved? No. I am saying that to have fellowship with him. And hopefully that's what we all just took advantage of in looking at the Colossians passage. Confessing our sins to him. Dealing with our sin. So the barriers are out of the way. And the pathway to his presence, paved by the blood of Christ, is freely open we're not putting any obstruction there Do you guys know god wants to have intimacy with you do you know this do you know this just found this for 53 cents at the restore enjoying intimacy with god i love it it's a good book who wants it i'm not going to throw it i'll give it up oh, somebody offered their hand up first do you own this copy do you own this book no okay tabitha is going to read it and she's going to share it with oh sorry that was Emily's fault. Uh, we'll just share it with, she's on staff, we can blame her. That's <laughs> what we pay her for. Um, Tabitha's going to read it. Look in the back. Amy, raise your hand. There you go. If you could let her borrow it when you're done, okay? Don't speed read, but get it in time. God wants to have intimacy with you. He already knows you entirely and completely. So notice the intimacy isn't because he needs to learn. The intimacy isn't because you're somehow just an enigma to him and he really wants to figure you out. We may think that, but notice that's a lot more about self than it is about coming to him. When we talk about that God wants us to have intimacy with him, we're talking about that he wants us to know him more, 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 more. Well, I don't want to know God too much. Isn't that true of us a lot of times? I love the Lord from this distance. That makes it safe, doesn't it? That way he can't grab us and do something crazy with our life, like send us on the mission field, move us to Wisconsin. I would say make us a Bears friend, but that's not from the Lord. We know that, right? <laughs> I've known of no sin in Pastor Steve's life except that one. It's good. <laughs> But we love being able to control how close the Lord is. We love control. We love it. Because if something's going to get fixed, well, guess who's going to do it? We are. Well, couldn't you have such and such? Cup? No, 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 no. No help. Just me. I sometimes brag to my wife that I am the master packer from touring in vans from having to load up four-by-six U-Hauls with a five-piece band's equipment, speakers, drums, everything, I can pack anything. We were loading up her winter shoes the other day and putting this, this, this. She goes, you forgot these. Can you fit them? I said, who did you marry? And you know what? I did. We brought home some Christmas presents. Grandparents going crazy. 
Got to load the car. Well, we might have to come back and get it. No. And she told me, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell on you on this. She told me, she said, don't let your pride break my car. <laughs> you know what? She was right. I didn't break the car. We made a home with all the presents. But this was all about me. This situation was me. Me looking good. Me being at the forefront. There was nothing in the Lord whatsoever about it. Well, does the Lord really get into where you're packing your presence? Yes. He is in everything. If we choose to submit to him in it, his guidance is complete. It's not like the Holy Spirit's like, you know what, I think I'll take a break on this. Why don't you just go ahead and handle it yourself? No. God knows what happens when we handle it ourselves. And he has saved us from that. The freedom we have now is not freedom to sin apart from the law and it's all hunky-dory moving forward. It's the freedom to turn away from sin and serve him at all times. We didn't have that capacity before. We were at a loss to do anything pleasing in his sight, even with the best intentions. Why? Because pride shines forth at every situation we are all about promoting ourselves the very sacrificial system for the day of atonement in the midst of israel stripped the person who had the opportunity to have the greatest pride amongst all the people in every tribe and notice that he had a bull there was one bull for aaron and there was a lamb for the people of israel does that say something on a scale? Aaron, your sin over the past year, what's that? A bull? Okay, these few millions of people here, what's their sin? <laughs> Everybody see the weight problem we have here. Think that was meant to tell Aaron something. You can't do it. You have got to get rid of your stuff to be able to properly be used by me so that other people will receive the benefit of what you have been called to. It's no different here. How about this? This is a really interesting one. Look over at 16, verse 29. Chapter 16, verse 29. Remember, God is painting a picture. Chapter 16, verse 29. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statue. Notice the two things that scream out to you. Humble your souls. And notice right after that in verse 29, and not do any what? Work. Why? Because you can't. Because when it came time for sins to be atoned for, any work that might possibly be done could be mistaken for merit. There is no merit in this situation. The only thing we have merited is the necessity for atonement. Does that make sense? That's all we deserve. That's the culmination. All the hours that we have put into this life is deserving of one thing, damnation. That's it. That's the paycheck we cash. Aren't you thankful for the cross? The cross alleviates us from that deserved end. I thought this was a good quote. It's in your notes. I'll just read it to you. This is by a guy who just passed away last year, Dr. Robert Leitner. I'll just read it to you. Don't try to find it. It's okay. It says, man has sought to make himself acceptable to God in a thousand different ways, but it still cannot be done. The ladder of human works is well-worn, but too short. No man has or ever will reach God's presence by climbing its rungs. Every such attempt, however small or large, is evidence that the condemned sinner does not really believe that he stands condemned. 
any attempt of works on our behalf to be somewhat pleasing to God illustrates one vivid point. It paints a picture for God to look at, and that is, I do not believe that my situation is hopeless. I believe that apart from you, there's still something. Of course, we know that Jesus came along later and said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Think God meant that? I do. Do we really believe it? See, that's the thing. A lot of times we have the, the truth in our face all the times. Do we really believe it? That there is no work whatsoever. None that we could do. It boggles my mind when people tell me reasons why they're right with God. You know, you believer in Christ? Yes, I am. Well, how do you know? Well, I taught, I never, I can't even believe that this person actually said this to me. Well, I taught Sunday school for six years. Okay. So you've suffered, we know that, but <laughs> just kidding. But that doesn't make you saved. I did my time. That doesn't make you saved. Why? Because you can do nothing. How do you know that you're a Christian? Because Jesus did it all. I have nothing to bring. Hope we get this. I hope we don't leave somehow thinking that we have merited something. What is atonement? When we see something like in verse 6, then Aaron shall offer the bull for sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement. What does the word atonement mean? It's part of where we get Yom Kippur from whenever they celebrate that. The Day of Atonement comes about in October, uh, beginning of October of every year. And what the word means is covering. It means to cover or to pacify or to satisfy is the idea, uh, to propitiate, if you're looking for the $5 Scrabble word, to propitiate something, to bring a satisfaction unto God, to cover up sin. Because notice, it's the problem between us and God, and it's got to be removed from sight. Does everybody get that? Yes? Yes? Who's asleep? Okay. Most of you looked up. Thank you for reassuring me. I appreciate that. So, number one, God is trying to paint for us in the cross a picture. Everybody seen the Passion of the Christ? Pretty gruesome, isn't it? They did a good job of picturing what sin looks like in a human form. That's what sin looks like. If you're taking notes, number two, what, is, what are they trying to tell us, number two? Number two is the fact of a sacrifice. God wants to show us what a sacrifice looks like. Turn over one chapter to Leviticus 17. We're told in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's pretty gruesome. In fact, I sometimes wonder if people who are unbelievers or don't know anything about the Lord, they visit a church sometimes, there's a talking about blood, 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 blood. They would probably think we're an extremely weird people. But what is the significance of the blood? What is, well, why did Jesus' blood have to be shed? We talk about the shed blood of Jesus. Why is it that he had to bleed? It's the what? It's the life. That's the reason why. Look at chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That word life in Hebrew can actually be interchanged with the word soul. Perfectly interchanged. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement, to make covering up, for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life, the soul that makes atonement. If you trace blood throughout the Scriptures, first real place we see it, Genesis 4. Yahweh approaches Cain. Where's your brother? Well, I don't know. It wasn't my day to watch him. He says, Cain, why do I hear your brother's blood crying out from the ground? What have you done? Do you guys know that blood cries out? Do you know that when blood is spilled on the ground, the Lord hears it? See, that's the significance we're talking about. When Noah comes off the ark, and they're now able to eat meat, which all of my barbecue friends say, amen. Right? But he gives them very specific directions. You are to drain all of the blood out of it. Why? For in the blood is the life of that creature. Notice you see here, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Some people may say, that's really repulsive. 
I'm kind of revolted at the idea of blood would be necessary. Why would a holy God demand blood? Couldn't he come up with something a little bit less gruesome than that? Couldn't he come up with something that isn't so disgusting? Let me ask you the question. I think it's interesting when people use all of those words to describe that situation. Have you ever noticed that those are the same things that God would slap on sin? Revolting, vile, abhorrent, disgusting. You think God takes any pleasure in sin at all? Is there any sin that's ever been committed that God sees as great? Man, that sin was great. Anybody? No, in fact, if you've noticed, even people who don't know the Lord, when they sin, they hide. Why? You don't know the Lord. What does it matter? I don't understand why people who are living together want to get married. Live together. You're sinning. Why are you trying in your own power to make it right? Everybody see that? There's a lot of things that we do sinfully behind closed doors because here's the thing. We know it's sin. There's something in us that testifies. And the Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. See, that work is already going on supernaturally in unbelievers' lives. God's already working there. So we want to talk about something that's disgusting and vile. Let's talk about what sin looks like in the presence of the Lord. Then we can have a conversation about blood and the necessity for it. What we see on that fact, we talk about a a blood-stained cross. is because the cross has to be blood-stained because first it was sin-stained. And that blood has got to cover up that sin. It has to atone. It has to satisfy the wrath of an almighty God. Those who have not believed in me are condemned, how? Already. Already. Unbelief already condemns. Therefore, this is the necessity of blood. Jesus had to bleed. He had to give his life for a ransom for many. Your sin, my sin, could not be taken care of any other way. And interestingly enough, he set up an entire Old Testament system in order to paint this picture so that when it showed up on the scene, people would know exactly what is taking place. So notice a sacrifice. Blood demolishes the barriers that sin puts up. Let's go to the last one. What else is... God trying to tell us in the cross. Number three, it's a testimony. It's a testimony. I'm going to ask you to go kind of quick on this. Turn to Romans 5. Don't hold your breath, but we might get done on time. And I don't say that with the intention of sinning against you. Romans chapter 5. We're going to hit these real quick. Romans 5 verse 8. You know this one. But I want you to read it. This is the whole reason why I wanted people to have the Word of God in their hands. Read what God has said, not what I say. Not what the screen says. Read what God has said. But God demonstrates His own, what? Love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died while we were sinners. Everybody see that? How about the next one, 2 Corinthians? Turn over to the right just a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5, 5.21. He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we, those who were yet sinners, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin so that you and I, because of the cross, might become righteousness. The one who knew no sin becomes sin. Notice it doesn't just say he took on sin. Notice it doesn't say that he put sin in his pocket. The scripture doesn't water it down. Jesus became sin. Why? Because he wants you and I to become something. And what is that? righteous it's an exchange that takes place how about this look at first peter 2 first peter chapter 2 
Turn to the right. First Peter chapter 2. Keep going past Hebrews. First Peter 2. Right after James. Yeah, I didn't lie. Okay, good. Philemon kind of wanders around in my New Testament. Sometimes he's one place. Sometimes he's another. I make sure he's in line in there. First Peter 2 verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Here it is. And he himself bore our sins in his body, in his flesh on the cross so that we now notice why did he do that he did it for us why so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed everybody see that how about chapter 3 verse 18 look over same same book verse 318 or sorry chapter 3 verse 18 For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just being Jesus. For the unjust, that's us. So that we, sorry, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Testimony. In other words, when we look at the cross, If we see anything there, we see that God says, I love you, and I want much better for you than what you are settling for. I want much better for you than what you think you have been dealt, and I have gone to painstaking lengths in order to make sure that the opportunity for you to come to me is free of obstacles. That's what the death in his flesh does. That blood paves a path. When he gave up his spirit, the temple curtain tore in two. Didn't we just see that Aaron can't mosey on into the holy place? And he's got to atone for his own sin? Here's what the cross says. The cross says Jesus has perfectly atoned for your sin. Now come to me. He invites you to be in His presence. He has removed everything that would keep you from it. Even your own self-doubt. Even your own self-examination. And I'm not just talking for unbelievers, I'm talking for believers. When's the last time you as a believer came to the cross? When's the last time you spent time at His feet? I'm convinced that one of the greatest reasons why we don't see more people ushered in from death into life by believing in Jesus Christ is because we haven't spent enough time with the Master in order to lead them there. Sometimes we've forgotten our way. Not all of us. But if the Spirit is doing this right now to your heart, it's probably you. And it's me. Don't think because I'm a holy man a man of the cloth, that I have been exempted from a desperate daily need of His mercy. Has this become stale to you? A lot of times Christians die out because they don't eat. A lot of times we think about the cross, oh yeah, I know that. I put it on every morning before I go out. It's routine. And we've considered the cross stale bread when it's actually the greatest nourishment we could ever have because it rids us of self and it makes much of Christ. He is all. Guys, when I say all, I mean all. Hopefully enough Bible study, we know that by now. All is all. And He is all. One last thing I want to show to you. Back to the passage that Kara read. John 19. If you compare crucifixion accounts, you find that when Jesus was going to be put on the cross, they tried to offer him a sedative that he rejected. 
he would not allow for his senses to be dulled by narcotics in facing the death that is considered the most excruciating death that's ever been invented by man on the face of the earth. He wouldn't allow for it. But it's very interesting at the end. In verse 28, and don't read this too quickly or you'll miss it. After this Jesus, now watch, and I love this because John tells us what's going on in Jesus' mind. Knowing that all things had already been accomplished. Do you realize what he just told you? Who controlled the death of Jesus? He did. Everybody see this? Because if you miss this, you'll miss the power that he's exerting on the cross. They mocked him, threw things at him, stripped him naked, spit on him, cast lots for his clothes, made fun of him. They were telling him, if you're really the Christ, come down! Come off that cross if you're really the king of the Jews. Let's see it. Could he have done it? Why didn't he? I mean, we we love nothing more than to show somebody up, don't we? Don't we? Good grief, we love it. And if an opportunity is presented to us, we'll go, yes, and I'll show you and talk bad about your mom at the same time. Right? We love those opportunities. And how amazing would it have been if Jesus would have, bam, broke those boards off, threw them down, and just started smoking all of them. You fools. I am God. Now that makes for, that's probably what Hollywood's going to do to the rewrite of this movie, right? But why doesn't he? What's that? Long what? Okay. She's right. Yeah, one day all he'll do is speak and that'll happen. But what does Hebrews tell us? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. Then he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. See, Jesus understood that on the other side of the cross was joy. And here's the thing, that joy is not just the exaltation of his position with the Father. If he wouldn't have died, could you have been saved? Everybody see that? This is why when we talk about the essence of fellowship, and when John says at the beginning of 1 John, I want you to have joy. I want you to have joy with me. And my fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And so you confess your sins. Abide in Him. Why? So that your joy may be full. You would have his joy. Your joy would be complete. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, knowing all things had been accomplished as he was hanging there. Then he takes something to drink. Why? Because Jesus, being human, wanted to make sure that his throat was clear because he had something to say to put a big exclamation point on the end of what God was trying to tell us. And here it is. Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He said, it's done. And he did it all. And I can't figure out why. Because I know me. Because I'm not deserving. He had no acclaim at that moment. There was no notoriety in this amongst people. There was nothing fame-worthy to go on. He wasn't going to go down in history as one of the greats that we had amongst us. People hated him. This word in Greek is what they would find on the end of sales receipts once a transaction was complete. If you were there at that time and you finally paid off your car or your mortgage, they would have stamped it with this Greek word, testelestai. Paid in full. Done. Nothing else. Nothing else is needed for you to be complete in him. Nothing. He does all the work. He bears all of the burden. He takes all of the shame. He receives all of the ridicule. 
He did it all. All of it. All of it. What is God trying to tell us? What you see is not a cross. It's an altar. It's an altar where there was a point of sacrifice that needed to happen. It's a representation, but take a look at it. It's the idea of your Savior hanging there and bleeding. Undergoing, and all I can do is use the word disrespect. But but I know that that's not strong enough. He was reviled. What is God trying to tell us in the cross? He wants to paint a very clear picture of our sin. He wants to tell us that there is a sacrifice that is only sufficient in blood. He wants to tell you how much He loves you and why you would want to spend any time apart from Him. It's nothing short of insanity. Because no one is going to love you more. No one is going to give you more. No one is going to help you more. No one is going to be able to hold your hurting heart like He can. But I tell you this, if you don't have that relationship with Him, or believer, if you're not cultivating that fellowship with Him, those words seem wasted and foreign to you. It's just church talk. Don't be deceived. And let me be very clear about this. And we all know it. God loves you. And He loves you so much He gave His Son. And that if you believe in Him, if you are confidently convinced that He is your Savior, you will not perish. You will not spiritually die apart from Him. You will have everlasting life. The moment that you come to faith in Christ, He completely forgives your sin. It is applied to you. Full and free. And forever. It's paid in full. Pray with me, please. Father, thank You for being a merciful Savior who has tasted death for all of us. In the cross, we get a grand scope of what grace is. It is the innocent dying for the guilty. It is the perfect saving the imperfect. Father, give our hearts understanding. We don't have eyes to see. Spirit, we definitely need it. The cross is weighty. Its magnitude is inestimable. I can't even say that word. Inestimable something. We can't estimate it. Because sin is too great and sin is too much. And none of it was a problem for you. Jesus died for all of it. And if we have new life, I pray, God, we would rejoice in your love. And if we do not have new life, today is a day of salvation. Today is the day to believe and be saved, to be forgiven fully and freely and forever. You've taken all guilt, all shame, all wrongdoing, and you have expunged it our record. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being worthy. Thank you for being everything that we need and so, so much more. pray all this in the name of our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen.